Welcome to Room for Growth, a Willow Tree podcast about growth marketing hosted by Billy Lowen and me, Billy Fisher. Whether you're an industry expert or just getting started, there's plenty of room to grow. Share this episode with your favorite coworker, follow us wherever you enjoy podcasts, and reach out if you'd like to join the show. You ready, Billy? I'm ready, Billy. Let's go. Let's f***ing grow. All right, everybody, welcome to Room for Growth. Uh, Billy, today we have an episode where we're highlighting a guest, George, and you weren't here for that conversation, but we had an awesome conversation with George, who's a senior director at Safeguard Cyber, and he's also a fellow podcast host, so we'll talk about that. But it's a bit of a different conversation that's on the edge of some of the normal MarTech stuff that we talked about, which is we'll really get into security and talk about AI and some of the challenges there. You know, one of the things that I mentioned to George, Billy, I'd love your thoughts, is AI. It's every single week, there's some new update, some new kind of piece of chat GPT or these other GPTs that are coming out. And I was listening to another podcast and they said, it took us a year from iPhone 1 to iPhone 2. But the rate at which these new features with AI are getting released over the past few months is kind of mind-blowing and the speed of, of expansion. It's, it makes you wonder what what's five years from now going to look like if we're moving this quickly. Yeah, totally. Every week, I keep looking for, I think, three different types of use cases. I'm using mostly chat GPT at the moment um, and trying to embed it in my daily life as a tool. And I'm always looking for three use cases. Where are humans being entirely replaced by this technology? <laughs> Where is this technology a good aid for human brain, but cognitive thought is still required to actually connect A to Z on whatever the question is? And where is chat GPT just failing to be especially helpful? And that has been interesting. Are you interested in my use cases of the week, Billy? Yeah. And it, you made me, as you I'm not prepared with this, but as you were talking, I, I saw there was a uh, research report of the percentage of people, and I'll, I'll find this, the percentage of people that think AI will impact their job versus mm. impact somebody else's job. And what people tend to think is AI is not actually going to replace me, but it will probably replace others. This research showed that like you, and maybe it's because we all think our job is hard and complex, but yeah, I, I like your categorization and breakdown. It's a good framework to put some of these exercises through. What is something that you think is going to replace has it been something that, that's jumped out to you in terms of replaced? Yeah. And I mean, keep in mind, you still need people really leading these conversations. But anytime I need to do some kind of landscape analysis or ecosystem review for different tech platforms, yeah. chat GPT is significantly better than I am at comparing and contrasting even very involved technical nuances between things like Marketo and Adobe Journey Optimizer. Right. I might know what those differences are, but its ability to frame them, categorize them, theme them, and write them out is so much faster than me as a person. All I'm really doing at this point is looking at what ChatGPT writes, confirming that it's true to what my brain knows and what the technology says about itself, and then maybe adding any nuances that might be too new. Yeah. So if you're trying to compare and contrast two very different technical platforms, ChatGPT is probably going to write that so much faster than a human brain could. I am replaced as a consultant. I will now be leaning 
primarily on that technology to help guide any recommendations I put together. Of course, I still have to be the person who assesses who's the client, what are their use cases, what's their budget, right. what are their goals, what outcomes are they trying to drive, what might be best for their ecosystem. It obviously can't quite take in that level of information, but I'd be interested to continue to try to feed chat GPT more nuance and more technical considerations and see how well it does. Yeah. But for just the basics of comparison, so fast, so good. Yeah. And like, I don't love the word replaced, I guess, because it immediately like stirs up negative emotions or fearful emotions. Accelerated as a kind of a more positive twist on that in terms of like these tasks that would typically you would spend a lot of kind of maybe not mindful work on are all of a sudden accelerated and you get into the strategic piece of it really quickly. Yeah. A better way to say it would be chat GPT just gave me back hours of my life <laughs> that I can spend on different things. I'm My brain power isn't needed to do that basic work. I can't be the only one that has been stuck doing like mindless task. Yes. You know, I was recently in a, in Salesforce doing kind of like Salesforce CRM management work. And I can't be the only one that's thinking about this Where's ChatGPT? Where's the AI for this? All these meaning, mindless buttons I'm clicking and logging. Certainly, there's got to be an answer for giving me back this time. So it's expanding quickly, but there's still a lot of room for growth. Yeah. No pun intended. (laughs) I think an in-between use case where it's helpful, but the human brain is still so critical is anything that involves fairly complicated math. So I've seen two use cases of this that I think are different, but both relevant. One was we asked chat GPT to tell us which piece of candy had the most volume, a starburst or I do. That's like a basic math question with some interpretation. And then I saw a much more complicated version of this, which is if I needed to build this like electrical slice for an automated vehicle and it needed these different components and it had to have this requirement, what should be the best design for it? And again, that's a math equation. It's really saying, where do the components of this electrical panel go and what would be the best way to build them? But on both of those, I think the thing that we saw is some of the math was maybe technically correct or the framework for the math was right. Like it basically explored here's surface area versus volume for these two pieces of candy, but the numbers were wrong. Like ChatGPT basically tried to pull from Google and it was just incorrect. And then it didn't think about volume in the right way. So its answer was wrong, but it was very confident wrong answer. Same thing for that more technical use case. It was actually really helpful, but some of the ways that it messed up its math would have really screwed up the recommendation that was made. Where it's like it was helpful to get you started, but if you didn't check those numbers and you just took them at fact, you would have had the wrong answer entirely. Yeah. You know, and one of the things I think about for marketers, I heard another statement that was kind of predicting that in a few years, a really important skill to have will be being able to be kind of like a director in terms of like a, when I say that a theatrical director or a, a, or orchestrator of these tools. So as a marketer, if you want to create a landscape audit or you want to create really great content you're going to, of course, have to have that strategic bone. You've got to be strong there. But a new skill will be the ability to leverage all these tools and orchestrate some of the features and advantages that they offer. And that's a skill that I think we're all learning on the fly together <laughs> yeah, every totally. day. So, so our conversation, we get into that a little bit in our interview. And I'm certainly would be curious 
after you have a chance to hear my interview with George, kind of what kind of thoughts that fires up. But you were gone. You were up in New York with some of our friends at Bray's. Is that right? Yeah, I was having a really fun week. Actually, we are doing a co-branded marketing project. So like marketers doing their marketing for themselves. I'm very meta of us, but we were collaborating with Braze in that project. So I basically got to spend a week hanging out with five or six of my teammates and then a bunch of the folks who are really talented from Braze. And we were filming together all around Times Square and the Braze office is in Midtown. So it's in a really cool part of the city. And we were exploring how to leverage Braze to drive digital transformation in a particular industry. I can't give too much away because this is coming soon and I want to create some spoilers. But I actually learned a couple of things that I thought were really interesting that I can share. So thing number one is that many of the changes to iOS in particular mean that fewer and fewer people are opting in to share their location on their cell phone that getting that opt-in is getting much more challenging. It used to be that you logged into an app for the first time and you would just immediately be prompted to give your location and to share it and that most people would just do that. But at least what Braze shared is that number has dropped fairly precipitously. So marketers now have the additional challenge before they really think about how to leverage geolocation, which is such a basic like circa 2015 technology for marketers. They have to really think about what's the value proposition to get people to opt in for that type of messaging. I actually kind of love that because it means we no longer just get to blanket except that people will give us their location and we can billboard a message to them based on basic parameters. We now have to be really thoughtful about what's the value exchange for somebody giving us yeah. their location and why would they do that and why would it be meaningful enough for them? So that was a cool takeaway, something I haven't thought about much lately. Yeah, that's interesting. I I probably should know this. Is that because Apple is, I've noticed this in apps, it's basically frequently asking me like approve my location while I'm using the app or yep. allow once, but there's not an option to allow permanently. That yes. at least that's interesting. Yes, definitely. So that's some of it. But then I think there's just a lot of continued fallout from changes to Google and Facebook allowing more privacy, which means yeah. marketers are having a harder time reaching people through cookies, which they used to have. They're having a much harder time reaching people even through apps in the ways that they used to expect to be able to. So they're just having to, I think, get better. I'm not saying yeah. I love these changes. I mean, I'm pro team marketer. So inherently have to balance our capitalistic right to display sales opportunities everywhere there's free space with the notion that all humans should get to control what kinds of messages are coming into their personal life and how their data is being used. But I think these changes are going to make user experiences better. It's going to make marketers have to be more creative and more thoughtful about what they're sending, which should ultimately be good for everyone. So I'm the eternal optimist, of course, but I'm optimistic in this case as well. For sure. Well, excited to hear some more of your learnings. And I know that here, I think sometime in June, we'll certainly revisit the thing that you were in New York shooting and we'll get more into that. That's going to be exciting to share for sure. But with that, we'll uh, move on to our interview with George, where we're going to get into security, AI and the B2B space. So let's get to that. All right, today on the podcast, we have George Comedi. And George is the Senior Director at Safeguard Cyber. 
and the co-founder and co-host of Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks. And those on video, he's got a, a sweet hat with that logo on. It's awesome. And Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks is a cybersecurity podcast that confronts the vendor, customer divide, and offers solutions. So make sure you check out that. And George, welcome to the podcast. Hey, yeah. Thanks for having me. So George, you're in our, our Charlottesville office, and I was looking through the questions and kind of preparing and a lot of timely topics talking about cybersecurity. We're going to get into ChatGPT and AI, a space that is changing every, I don't know, hour, it seems like sometimes. We're accelerating at a speed that I don't think we've ever experienced. And your general professional trajectory in terms of how you got where you are today. I'm curious, you know, I was looking at your background. You went from being an award-winning writer to becoming a leader in cybersecurity. How the heck did you get there? Yeah, it's a very circuitous route. There's no linear path. I like to say my career looks more like a family circus comic strip. <laughs> Let's see, I was an anthropology major because I'm pretty interested in people. And then after college, I tried a bunch of things. I was a rock climbing instructor. I was a wedding photographer. I eventually went back to school for writing. I got my MFA in creative writing. And apparently, if you can string more than two sentences together, that qualifies you to be a marketer. So I got a gig as a copywriter. And then from there, moved across into social media, which at the time was fairly new from a marketing, like an enterprise marketing perspective. And at the time, a lot of the clients I worked with were in the B2B space and had little to no idea what to do on social media, which really comes down to understanding your audience, people. It's basically digital anthropology of a sort. Hmm. And then I saw an ad for a cybersecurity company that was specializing in protecting people from threats through social media. And that felt like a good new challenge and a lateral move. And I've been there ever since. And I would say as an industry, the cybersecurity community is very welcoming and also very nurturing of curiosity. It's actually, I think, very difficult to get very far in cyber if you're not a curious person because you sort of have to keep up with the threats at all times and the technology. But also you just have to ask questions. It's a very complex environment to try and protect. And that takes us to today when we are in, as you said, a moment where it seems the technology is changing hour by hour. And I would say alternating hours of either <laughs> exuberant enthusiasm to outright panic. Yeah, well said. And I love hearing about people's kind of trajectory. I often think back to when I was graduating college. I think my parents had this idea that it was like the MBA draft and that I've just gone <laughs> and gotten this degree and that there's people lining up and there's this clear path to exactly what the rest of my career will look and feel like. And thankfully, I love change and love new challenges. So thankfully, that's not the way it goes. You kind of never know what might be next. And but yeah, those core attributes that led you to um, cybersecurity, that's interesting. I've never heard it described that that way. So that's new to me and really cool. As I mentioned on the outset, you're a co-host and co-founder of a cybersecurity podcast, really active on social media. So we'll have to make sure where people can find you here. But let's get into it a little bit. Let's yeah, yeah. talk about cyber trust and safety, a topic that I'm certainly not an expert on. So I'd love to let's get into your take on the space. Yeah, I mean... In the world we're living in now, which is at the dawn of basically synthetic reality, <laughs> I believe, at least from a marketing and a product perspective, that trust and safety is going to be the differentiator 
because if you think about it, there are applications now that only require three seconds of your voice to basically recreate your voice with near perfect verisimilitude, right? So that's that's all content security verification out the window, like no more calling the bank and pretending that you lost your pin because somebody can do that for you. There are companies that will create AI-generated headshots from just 12 submitted selfies. So basically, yeah. you can deep fake yourself. And then we have this new phenomenon of the large language models entering the general populace. And so that's also going to bring you generated text, right? And yeah. so I strongly believe, you know, within the next 10 years, our entire experience of what we think is the internet will be completely different. For the last sure. 30 years, it's been humans interacting with text in a digital space. It's going to be mediated by AI at all turns, whether that's virtual assistants doing the work for you. So think of it as machines talking to machines. And so the little chatbots you get now on a website where it's like, do you want to talk to sales? Yes or no, right? These are just like decision tree, if then statements. When you start powering that into like conversational customer support, and you know the business leaders are going to look for ways to cut costs and just replace entire for call sure. centers with these. If you have that and you have, let's say you even call an 800 number, could be an entirely synthetic voice. I think people are going to hunger for the real. And I think that any brand that can distinguish itself as reliably creating human experiences will stand out. It's interesting. Yeah, my co-host, Billy, she constantly is talking about kind of nostalgia and the power of nostalgia mm -hmm. and marketing. And I was actually thinking that in the context of AI and, and what is to come. I was listening to some discussions about the future of Hollywood as it pertains to AI and how movies will be created and shows will be created and the unlimited opportunity. But it did make me wonder if at 30 years from now, 20 years from now, is kind of nostalgia of old Hollywood going to be this you know huge thing that everybody's excited about because now movie scripts and animated films are created in a matter of minutes because of, of some of the power. But I'd love for you to unpack, is that what you mean by kind of real experiences or unpack yeah. real a little bit? Good question. So I think when we're confronting new technologies, we tend to look at them and think, I've never seen this before. It's all new. We sort of jump on the hype train. Right. But we have actually seen some of these movies before, right? So the whole digital advertising boom from, say, 2012 on to now, I guess, that's when brands thought like, oh, we'll just take down the out-of-door advertising budgets. We don't need billboards anymore. Why would I do TV and radio when I can get hyper-targeted on Facebook, this and the other? And they plow all this money into that. And I think we're beginning to see some of that retreat. I've seen some of the most creative ad work is done out-of-door, like mm -hmm. either at bus stops or in trains or whatever. And it's because there's a recognition that if you live your entire reality and now, you know, like lots of people have ad blockers, so you can't reach them anyway. Yeah. Apple's ad tracking blocking has decimated the ad targeting in new ways. And we sort of get over that, but what stands out is still very human experiences. So yeah. I think we may live in a digitally mediated space the brands that can distinguish themselves, and this is a challenge because it's not easy for every brand, but the brands that can distinguish themselves with either real world activations or 
think about like unboxing videos, like how pleasant it is to unbox certain products. Like yeah. Apple changed the game on that, right? Before it was just right. like stick it in cardboard and ship it. But then it was like it had to be an aesthetic experience. That is going to become very important. And also being able to relay to your customers very clearly that you are having an experience with a human, it's going to make all the difference. Yeah. As you're saying that, it's a great point because I was thinking about direct mail and like Instagram it, to me is one of the best ad models where it seems like they get me all the time as I'm scrolling through and I like coming across brands that well, yeah, that looks sweet. And I'm just making ridiculous impulse purchases that I wasn't planning on. <laughs> However, I've noticed like direct mail has upped its game lately and I'm getting these catalogs where it's that same experience, but it's much, you know, rather than a little 10 second video ad, I'm flipping through and getting really intrigued. And certainly it's not the same old catalog space as 20 years ago where I'm like actually making a purchase through the catalog. You know, you get on the website and it becomes a digital experience. But in terms of like new brand awareness, it seems to be a very effective strategy today because I don't actually get that much mail anymore. And so I get this really good looking catalog with a clothing item or a sports item that I'm interested in. So yeah, that tactile. Yeah, it's all context, right? Like humans are context and meaning making machines and the context that that catalog operator is now working against is they've got to gain your attention against the context of a very rich saturated aesthetic experience online and the old sort of sears photos against a white background is just not going to do it for you anymore yeah right so in the area of security And as you mentioned, we, new technologies come out, it's moving at an incredible pace and blowing our minds every week on the security side. What do you think? Will this environment become regulated? Like what will need to happen in order to maintain security and trust in the space as these tools continue to expand? Yeah. We think about this a lot. So there, I guess, two fronts. One, in terms of plausibility, right? So things like large language models are really sophisticated mathematical Mm -hmm. systems to get language as close to what is statistically probable, which means what is most plausible, right? So already today, what we call social engineering attacks, which is something convinces you to do something out of the norm, whether it's uh, pay this invoice because it looks like something legitimate or I need you to reset your password, and then I intercept it. Those have been on the rise. And for your listeners, if they're not familiar, like some of the biggest, most sophisticated companies on the planet, we're talking millions of dollars in cybersecurity budgets, very sophisticated technical controls, huge teams. They can all be undone by a single end user getting popped through social engineering. Hmm. And those attacks are on the rise and they can evade a lot of controls because it's just based on human language and human experience. So now layer on top of that plausible text that can be generated very quickly in a very personalized fashion that I think we've already begun to see is a major problem. It's like gasoline on the fire. Now, the other front that we're looking at is I think just consumers sort of getting inured to data breaches against the background of multiple states having to pass their own privacy laws in absence of anything from the federal government, right? The federal government is just can't get anything done on privacy. So the states are doing it themselves. So now 
let's return to that app I was talking about that promises to deliver AI-generated headshots. If you are submitting 12 selfies to get this generated, is that qualify as biometric data, right? That's the same face you're using to open your phone, Mm -hmm. to open a Windows machine. In Texas and Illinois, for example, they have anti-biometric laws. So no one knows yet. It has not legally been tested. Does that software, is that essentially illegal in those states? Is the way they're processing the data in accordance with the way it has to be processed in California? This patchwork is going to get super annoying, super fast. Yeah. And so for companies that have any operations outside of one state, aka all of them, you're going to have to really double down on privacy and data controls and be able to assure your customers. And again, I think when you think about brands that you want to emulate, think about Apple, Mm. right? So it's really hard to buy the kind of brand loyalty that Apple has. I think recently Warren Buffett asked, you know, how much would people be willing to be paid to never have to use an iPhone again? Like if I could give you one lump sum to convert to Android, what would it be? And people were turning down like $5 million. They will not take $5 million to have to use an Android phone for the rest of their life. Wow. Okay, so that's one feeling you have about a brand. But I think people also trust that Apple is doing something about privacy in ways that other companies are not. I personally love the sign-in with Apple, so I don't have to keep putting in my email address. Hmm. And so when Apple does something like they did recently, which is open a high-yield savings account, like people are like, Apple, bank account? I think people are going to trust that because they've built up decades of trust in privacy. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, in terms of trusted brands and the opportunity, you know, maybe Apple will lead the way in some of these tools. I can't, you know, just as a quick aside, as you're telling this story, and I don't know if it's like because I'm getting old or what, I'm excited by all these tools. And I think we could probably have like a a long conversation about all the incredible things that are going to unlock with these language models as they continue to advance that are going to be great for society and great for mankind. But your story about the, the headshots think, wow, good thing I'm not one of those people that post all sorts of selfies all the time to the internet, (laughs) because somebody could easily take all those selfies and start to create probably many images of me that look just like me doing maybe things that could be harmful to me and my persona out there that aren't actually me. It's kind of scary. Yeah. And I think it's the scale and the speed, right? And so a practical example would be when Twitter kind of flubbed the rollout of the verified accounts, right? Right. Somebody bought and posed as Eli Lilly for whatever it was, $8, right? And said, insulin is free and took $15 billion off of Eli Lilly's stock price. Like that is a legitimate problem, right? right? I mean, ideally people realize that and, you know, Eli Lilly did what they could do from a PR standpoint and said like, you know, that's not us and they will eventually recover. But that's not to say that if you were to build a model that was trying to, let's say, optimize returns on one portfolio, that that model might not decide the best way to optimize those returns or to sync the stocks of yeah, these other companies exactly. and then just do that autonomously and right. cause real economic harm. So when I say trust yeah. and safety, I mean the ability to verify the veracity of information is going to yeah. be key. Yeah, because, I mean, AI is ruthless it has no emotion <laughs> obviously so it's the broomstick from fantasia right. yeah, you know yeah. if it's just gonna <laughs> keep unloading you know bailing out the well oh, wow well as i was saying easy to talk about all the scaries because there's plenty of them out there and it'll be interesting to see over the next 
weeks, months, and years, what happens there. But do you have any ideas around practical ways that marketing teams should be thinking about language models like ChatGPT or other AI applications? Any thoughts there? Yeah, I think at a high level, what I would say is if you want to use AI to do the status quo faster and cheaper, that is the dumbest possible way to use that technology. So people will say things like AI is the new fire or it's like the wheel. The reality is that it's like fire that will eventually invent the light bulb and lasers, right? So it will begin to iterate on itself. But you need to use these technologies in a way to unlock your human employees. If it's simply to replace copywriters, then great. You can do it super cheap and your copy is going to (laughs) suck. I mean, you're going to be content with that. Like you're garbage in, garbage out. You're just going to get very bland, middle of the road copy. And Mm -hmm. marketers speak to people. Markets are made of people. The machines don't do the buying, right? So if you need to appeal to people, the humans that you have employed that understand your brand have value to add. Where can AI take some of that off is going to be in the mundane tasks where they'd like really waste time. I'm super into the idea that my email would be respond to me. Sorry, I can't make that meeting because I'm double booked and I don't have to write that. Great. Right. Cool. But when it comes to what other things marketers could do, I would point them in the direction of things that they have wanted to do that are to date very difficult or expensive to do. So for example, practically speaking, you get these marketing surveys that are numerical and kind of asinine. But it's because it's easy to quantify very quickly. Like, rate us on a scale of one to five. And then you try to, like, read the tea leaves and be like, I don't know, more people rated us three after we did this one test. So maybe that was, you know, you just have to, like, make all these suppositions. But I think what marketers really would like to do is the anthropology of their customers. What if you could interview your customers at length You're watching the video, you're understanding that. Meanwhile, it's being transcribed by speech to text, which is a type of AI. I really want to iterate that chat GPT is not like the be all end all of AI. It's actually a very (laughs) narrow uh, application. Then you could take those transcripts and feed it into something like there's an application called chat PDF, which uses the open AI API. I would encourage you to use that because when you call to the API, the data is private and doesn't go into the training model. So You don't want to like feed your customer data into the training model, but you could analyze long conversations at scale, find themes, find places where people are exuberant and where maybe there's a hiccup in your UI or there's like a, every time I go to check out like the cart, you know, but unless you have a bunch of people interviewing at scale, like hundreds of your customers, that would get really annoying and really expensive, but that's the kind of rich data that you want to be able to make actionable decisions. And that's where these tools could be helpful as processors. I try to think of the large language models as being much more useful as a processor of information than a generator of information, since they are also not reliable when it comes to generating like the same thing to multiple responses. So that's where I would think about it. It's like, how can you leapfrog where you are today rather than just simply spin your wheels in the present at a faster or cheaper rate. That's not really like a smart application. Yeah, it's interesting. And lately, I've been thinking about this. We had a guest previously when we were talking about analytics for marketing clients and AI came up and he had an analogy of like, it's sometimes like talking about running your first Ironman when you've yet to complete a marathon. And I've thought a lot about that and I've, I've 
been maybe at on the border of being cynical a couple of times about AI and how it can impact some of our clients. And I think, well, we're just solving basic problems. We're trying to like get to the foundational area. So we're not ready yet. But what you're almost proposing is like it can accelerate, you know, to use our marathon example, it can almost help you skip a marathon. You know, some of these tools like move from basic to if you use them the right way, it can enable and unlock your ability to do really advanced things like transcribe huge conversations with customers much quicker than you might be able to. So I like that take. Yeah, the pattern recognition is much faster than you'd have to have a bunch of humans in there who'd all seen like the same material and been familiar with it. But like another application might be, or like a cautionary tale would be from the B2B space, you would traditionally have these people who would like literally have a phone book open, cold call people, right? And so at some point they were like, let's automate it. And now you can send like 5,000 emails at once. So I can send the same garbage generic message at scale. So it's like, is the automation allowing you to do mediocrity really well, really fast? Or is it allowing you to unlock excellence? And that's a question that you can only back into when you're really like, what are the outcomes I want to work towards? Hmm. Yeah. I love that. So you mentioned B2B marketing. I know that's a a space you spend a lot of time in. I'd be curious, like, what are some of the pitfalls? We've talked a ton about consumer B2C Mm -hmm. marketing on this podcast. And so I would love to just get into B2B a little bit. What are some of the the pitfalls in B2B marketing today? Maybe batch and blasting, you might maybe just pointed out one of those, but tell me some others. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes down to essentially alienation from the customer. When you think you're selling into a business, you're like, you think about the logos, you think about the accounts, right? Oh, I really want to break into Wells Fargo. I really want to sell to Microsoft, whatever. And so then you think about people as a stand-in for those, like, okay, who are my ICPs or ideal customer profiles within those companies? And ultimately, if you follow that train of logic, it becomes very dehumanizing very quickly. And it justifies you doing things like sending 5,000 emails into the same organization. Fortunately, those organizations have learned to start blocking some of that software, much like people block ads. And so what you start to get into is this, how quickly can I get your attention and how quickly can I pitch rather than how quickly can I get to a relationship where I can listen and understand your problem. Because in a B2B space, it's not like solve this problem, run my credit card, tick a box. You're usually dealing with large stakeholder engagements, multiple departments. They have to justify how is this software going to help the business drive growth? How is it going to save money? How is it going to be operationally more efficient? And so you really have to take time and you have to do that at a high quality rate. And I think we got enamored with automation and we got enamored with digital advertising and we just kind of went on blast and hoping that our sales would sort of go up and to the right. And I think we're in the midst of like, at least in cybersecurity, a huge pushback from the customer base. And we're in that friction moment right now. And some companies are learning that they have to go back to doing things more qualitatively. And some companies are just going to try and power through that. But I will tell you, at least on the cybersecurity side, Our buyers, which is the chief information security officer most of the time, not all of the time. I mean, they're human, so they talk. And I have seen, and my co-host is a CISO, they talk to each other about the companies that they don't like because of their sales tactics. So from a brand, and let's go back to trust and safety perspective, 
cybersecurity is built on trust. And if you're going to abuse that trust, you're just going to get essentially boycotted. And you might not even know it because they're all talking in separate Slack channels. Yeah. But your name is mud. Like you could torch your entire account list and you might not even know it. And I think that that's just requires, I don't know, I hate to simplify it down to something as banal as like the golden rule. But like, mm-hmm. I don't want to be pitched to that way. So why would I encourage right. my team to do the same? Yeah. And we're all victims of the blasting emails. I mean, anybody that's working for a company, I, I get them of, uh, yeah. you know, the same recycled tactic over and over again that, yeah, just outside of a salesperson getting really lucky. And on that particular day, I have the very specific problem that they have randomly emailed me about. It just is uh, ineffective. And like you said, it's annoying and kind of muddies your name. So Yeah, let me give you actual numbers. So we talked to a CISO who said he talked to a BDR, a business development representative, who said he sent maybe 12 emails a week, which is ridiculously low compared to, you know, people want like, you know, 50 calls a day plus thousands of emails per week. And that BDR told him he gets nine responses. That return is incredible. Like any marketer or salesperson would kill for that return, right? (laughs) So, but we've gotten into these habits where it's like, you know, you send out a thousand and you get like a 1.2% click rate and you're like, Mm -hmm. yeah, got it up from (laughs) 1.1. Like that's the win. And that is highly problematic because again, the pool of buyers is not only but so big, but if they're all talking to one another, you're going to have a huge problem going forward. Yeah, I would love to see. And if you're a SDR and you're a sales development representative or a BDR and you're blasting these messages out there, I mean, talk about a tool that can be or a, a tactic that can be replaced by some of these tools that we're talking about. That's pretty low hanging fruit. Yeah. And it's not fun or just to those people. It's like just throwing them in a wood chipper and saying, like, right. good luck. Yeah, I would love to see the prep cycle for that person that's sending those 12 emails in a week. I would love to kind of see what the the behind the scenes work is leading up to each of those emails. I would imagine it's fairly extensive if they're yeah, that effective. Yeah. We're excited. I think we got him coming on in May because I was like, I have to talk to this person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I look forward to hearing that. And so on your podcast, Bare Knuckles and Brass Tags, what made you start that? Yeah, so... That's a fine question. So my name is George. I'm on the vendor side and I had been going back and forth on LinkedIn and I met this CISO named George at a conference called Black Hat, which is one of the bigger cybersecurity Mm -hmm. conferences every year in Las Vegas. And he and I had some of the same gripes and, you know, it was a really refreshing experience. He was like, hey, so tell me what Safeguard Cyber is all about. And I wasn't expecting to pitch him. Like if he came to our event, I was just going to like, slow roll it. And I was like, oh, you're actually asking. I was slightly unprepared for that, but here it is. (laughs) And the fact that we could sort of like acknowledge that dance, which is a term we use all the time, just be like, you're a vendor, I'm customer, let's not pretend like we're here because we like each other. We did actually end up striking a friendship. And I was like, look, you have this point of view. I have this point of view. You're George. I'm George. This thing writes itself. So let's have this podcast. And you know, we launched it and the reception has been very good, but we call it bare knuckles and brass tacks because the bare knuckles part is like just let off steam off of bad practices. Yeah. And he is actually a fighter. It's like he actually competes. So <laughs> okay. sometimes he has a black eye or two when we record. Love it. But it was like, well, we don't want to admire the problem, right? Because it's really easy to kvetch about B2B tactics. So the second half of the show is actual brass tacks. Like we ask the guests, like what 
can we practically pass on to people? Like if we said, don't do this in the first part, like what should they do instead? Right. Yeah. And so that's where it's taken off. And, uh, it's been pretty successful to date considering we have, you know, it's a passion project. So there's not like a lot of heft behind it, but I, I think that there is an appetite for that conversation. Yeah, for sure. And I love that you're kind of getting the solution because I've been, you know, a, a contributor to some of these tactics over the years because, you know, you're trying to move pipeline, create pipeline. Mm-hmm. And, and you're like, ah, sometimes you just don't know what else to do, but blast an email out in bad times. But I've also been a complainer around <laughs> these things. And so just getting to like, at the end of the day, though, you know, hey, I have a solution and I need to, to get it. And maybe I really want to work with this company. And, and I have, I think we can really help how to get there is something that I think particularly right now is really, it's ripe because that age old tactic of cold emails, I think is really starting to just fizzle away. And I think at least from the cyber side, a lot of it has to do with work from home, right? When people went into an office, they sort of expected that was part of the job. That was the context that they were stepping into. But when people work from home and you're calling their cell phones, like, no, man, don't don't call me at home and don't spoof the area code because I might think it's, you know, my kid's school. And that's just, again, not the right tone you want to set when you're trying to get someone on the line. Yeah. But yeah, I think that a lot of it is inertia, right? Like, as you were saying, if you think there's a problem and the industry is telling you, like, this is what the best practice is, and it's hard to stop and question it or be the person who puts their hands up and saying, like, maybe this isn't the right way. I think it's really easy to get carried away. And I think, again, as we talked about AI and technology, the people who can just like pause long enough to think slightly differently are probably the ones who are going to leapfrog and get ahead. And our last guest, our most recent guest, is developing a platform to match buyers and sellers. Hmm. And she accurately pointed out that she doesn't think it's going to replace salespeople because her vision is that it would get rid of a lot of the song and dance at the upfront and free the seller to actually be that relationship manager, which Hmm. they need to be, right? Like if you want someone to sign a seven-figure cybersecurity deal, that takes a lot of trust. Right. It takes a lot of human interaction back and forth. But if you can get to that part faster, then the technology is doing what we want it to do, which is to expedite the awful mm. and allow people to do what they do best. Love it. Yeah, that's great. So in addition to your work at Safeguard Cyber, you do a ton of work with women in cybersecurity, serve on advisory boards for uh, some more organizations like Vision and Voice and Women in Security Community. So tell us a little bit more about those organizations, the work that they're doing, and how you got involved there. Yeah. So Vision and Voice is a community started by our CMO, Lisa Hayashi. And I fell into that by dint of working with her, but I really came to see the value in it, not least of which because I have a daughter and I would like to work for a world in which she is competing with an equal paycheck and on an even playing field, but also because we cannot be stronger in terms of security with kind of the same level of thinking. This is the same in any organization, right? You need a diversity of experience, you need diversity of thought. And we see a lot of women entering cybersecurity more than ever before. But then when you look after middle management, those in leadership roles, it really just craters. The numbers, there's just like this black hole around the senior manager to director level. 
And we're still trying to figure that out. I reckon some of it has to do with women taking off time to have children and they are either not supported through that process and how they return to work. Or I think women also feel a pressure to become very technically adept in their field. So without going into too much, right, there's like there's red team, there's sock analysts. And so they might like drill really deep into that. And they're not getting the business acumen mentorship that's going to allow them to make the leap into those leadership roles where you have to get out of your own little department and kind of into the higher strategy. Not that they don't want to, but they feel both the twin pressure to be highly specialized and more technically adept than the men, but they're also not getting like the networking and sponsorship to get up into those executive levels. And that's something that we're really trying to address with curriculum, sponsorship matching and stuff like that. That's awesome. Yeah. And as a dad of two daughters, I can certainly get behind that. Sometimes I realize I've been spoiled in my career because at each of my jobs, I think back, there's been senior leaders who are women that I respect so much. And it's almost made me kind of blind to some of the challenges in the space. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm surrounded and I have that now with Billy Lowen, my, my co-host is a leader of a 75 person team, incredible. Jamie Tim is mm-hmm. our chief delivery officer and, and somebody that is, you know, an incredible leader. And so that's awesome that you're doing that work and especially in your niche in the, in the cybersecurity space, kind of creating paths. When I think about diversity of thought, it's not just like, let me even out the numbers. It's like people bring a wealth of experience. And I've been privileged enough to interview a lot of people who've entered cyber and no one has a linear path. Some are like history students and they just have pattern recognition from their scholarship. Some are artists and they sort of got bored with art school and discovered computer. I don't know, but they're going to bring something to the table that you haven't thought of if you Mm -hmm. only came from one background. Yeah, love it. Well, George, awesome conversation. I think we could probably continue to talk about a bunch of these things and maybe we need to have a refresher in like three months because this it'll all be different. (laughs) I I just cannot. It's like nothing I've ever experienced. And it's made me feel better over time about maybe not being as uh, knowledgeable as I need to be because when talking to others, like, yeah, good luck. It changes every week. But it's also really exciting, especially for those of us who are working in the technology industry. On this podcast, we love to talk about loyalty and brands. And it's every week, every podcast, that's really something we're super passionate about. I'm curious about a brand that you're passionate about and loyal to. And tell us about a brand you're loyal to and why. Yeah, I'm going to eschew the word loyalty because I'm highly skeptical of marketing as a marketer. But (laughs) I will give you two standout examples and why. So the first is Dove. You know, ever since they started the campaign around true beauty and, mm-hmm. and using women of every size and shape in their advertising. That's one thing. But very recently, they've started a new campaign to push for federal regulation of social media use for children. And they've released this devastating movie on YouTube. I want to say it's like six minutes long, but it yeah. tracks the journey of this young girl who gets her phone for the first time and goes from sort of the innocent, playful child all the way into the hospital with eating disorders. And Mm -hmm. it it uses real footage and it uses the real families. And the cynic might say like, okay, they're just a brand and they're doing it for the feels. Mm, I mean, maybe, but they have a vision and they have an ethos. And yeah, I'm sure maybe they can go to Unilever and be like, this helps us sell more soap and shampoo. (laughs) But they are also like actively pushing people who watch the video to 
sign a petition pushing federal legislators. And that is something that stands out to me. Yeah, takes a lot of guts. Yeah, the other one is a fitness nutrition supplement brand called First Form, and that's spelled P-H-O-R-M. And I'll say that just because I spend, my therapy is a barbell and a steel gym. But they, when they send stuff to me, I often get handwritten notes. So going back to the human touch, not just like, thanks for your order and pen. I mean, I'm like paragraphs on the shipping slip, either about why they like that particular product. The most recent one I got was a bookmark. And they were like, here at First Form, we really believe that everyone needs to be constantly learning something about like they have a reading challenge inside the company. So I don't know. But those are the things that stand out. Right. Because you get a lot of stuff in the mail. You get packages all the time. You get shipping slips. But to see and it's not typed. I mean, it's like different handwriting every time. I don't know. It just means something. It stands out. Yeah. So uh, that's not easy to do. If you think about you're running a company and you're shipping uh, supplements and things to say like, hey, yeah, I want you to write a thoughtful note with each one. That's hard to pull off. And so somebody making that extra effort, that's cool. So I think that's like, yeah, again, going back to culture, that's indicative of something they've built there where it supports that kind of work. Yeah, that's amazing. Awesome. George, that's a new one. We've heard Dove one other time, the chief marketing officer at White Castle, also Dove. So it's fun as we've been on this journey for the past year, hearing some of the brand new ones and also some of the brands that are obviously making an impression with customers. So that's great. Thanks for sharing. George, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Tell us a little bit before we let you go where users can find you? Is it is it Twitter, LinkedIn, anywhere else? Yeah, good question. Twitter's a cesspool now, so not there. Mostly LinkedIn because I, for better or for worse, write rather discursively about the a lot of these security issues and it just gives mm-hmm. me the space and time to do that. So awesome. that's where it is. And uh, yeah, bare knuckles and brass tacks if you're, I think some of the lessons there are applicable to B2B generally, but yeah, anyone who's listening from the security side, the software side, I, I hope you find some value in it. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks a lot, George. We'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much. 